Hi, my name's Pete and I'm one of the ministers here at Inspire St. James Clerkenwell. Now we're starting a new series in the letter of James, but of course, as we've already talked about and prayed about this service, we're also thinking this week about the tragic killing of George Floyd and what this has, I suppose, shown up in our society in the West, both in the US and also in the UK about embedded racism. Now our vision here at Inspire St. James Clerkenwell is to be a united and diverse community inspiring London with the good news of Jesus Christ. Now that vision of unity and diversity is absolutely key because we understand from scripture that it is a key part of the gospel. God's great plan is to unite all things, all people together in Christ. The vision at the end of the Bible in Revelation 7 is of every tribe, nation and tongue gathered around the throne, diverse but united in Christ. And if that is the goal of the gospel, then of course racism matters. Of course it matters if it exists within the church. The church should not be this way because it will not be this way in the future. So we really wanna speak about this and grapple with this, but we also want to be looking at the letter of James. And one of the wonderful things about the letter of James is that the issue of racism and discrimination is not a tangent to the letter, but is actually a key component of the letter. Look at chapter one, verses seven to eight. James writes, that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. We're gonna see as we go through the letter that one of the big themes for James is double-mindedness. And the next place that he really brings up the idea and applies it and shows what he means by this is in chapter two when he talks about what the NIV translates as favoritism between believers, but it could just as easily and maybe better be translated partiality or discrimination. Now for James, the issue then was about rich and poor, but we know that it could equally be about race or ethnicity, about reconciliation between Jew and Gentile. His issue is any discrimination within the family of believers undermines the gospel, which is about the radical unity in Christ for all believers, regardless of health or wealth or race or status or socio-demography. We are all united in Christ. Now, one of the questions we have to grapple with as we look at our passage today is how this relates to the key theme that we have in chapter one, verses uh, one to eight of perseverance. Perseverance comes at the beginning of James and at the end of the letter of James. And we have to try to work out how perseverance relates to this key idea of living out the gospel, of not discriminating. Because often perseverance at the beginning and the end of the letter are kind of taken as addendums, as add-ons to the letter as a whole, which is about living out the gospel in all of life. So how does perseverance relate to that? Well, I think it's linked um, in this way. It's one thing to say that you believe the gospel. It's one thing to say, yes, you're keen to live it out. But the real test comes when you're asked to do that under trials, under difficulties. The natural inclination of the human heart is to turn in on ourselves. It was the Christian great Augustine who talked about sin as turning in on ourselves. He called it incovatus in se in the Latin. That means to twist in and to turn in ourselves. And so the temptation, particularly under trials, particularly under suffering, is to stop looking out to others and stop looking up to God, but instead to become self-absorbed 
And so the question James is asking is that when we're talking about perseverance, it's not so much are we going to keep clinging on to Christ, though it is at least that, but it's are we going to keep clinging on to Christ and living out the gospel in all facets of life when trials come? For him, perseverance is about continuing to live out the gospel, not turning in on ourselves, not quarrelling, not discriminating, not falling into partiality or racism. That's one of the key questions we're going to have to grapple with. And so in this passage, we see how it is that we can persevere in the gospel life, in living this out. And therefore, it applies to our situation today about how it is that we can avoid discrimination and racism, not just as a one-off good intention, but as an issue of perseverance as we continue to live out the gospel life. So we're going to see two ways to really persevere in this gospel life. The perspective of persevering in the gospel life, and secondly, the threat to persevering in the gospel life. Let's look at them in turn. First of all, the perspective of persevering in the gospel life. Now, to get our bearings a little bit in this letter, we need to do the normal things of working out who is writing it and who they're writing to. So who is writing it? James, verse one, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Straight away, we need to get used to James's style. He's pretty punchy, he's short, he's sometimes scant on detail, and we're hardly given any information about him here, just that he's a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. But this rather stripped back opening is made all the more poignant when we realize that this is written by so-called James the Just, that is Jesus's brother, James. And what is remarkable, therefore, is the way that James views himself Notice he makes no reference to his blood ties to Jesus, which we would think would be something you would lead with. Instead, the defining feature of who he thinks of himself as being is that he is of the Lord Jesus Christ and he's a servant of God. In other words, he's just like every other believer. And that makes a very important, profound point because he goes on to call most frequently Christians brothers and sisters. In other words, he says, I have no special status by virtue of my blood ties to Jesus in God's family. I am a brother and sister, part of the family like you. And therefore, and this is key, if James with blood ties to Jesus does not think that makes him any better than any other human being, all are equal, in Christ and when viewed from a Christian perspective, then where do we get off thinking that race or ethnicity ever makes any person better or more important than another? That's an essential implication of this. We are all equal. God sees us all equally because Christ died for all. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ. If we trust in Christ, there's no special status. So James, who is he writing to? Well, he's writing to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. The idea of them being the 12 tribes shows a continuity with the Old Testament that the true inheritor of the title of Israel in the New Testament are those who believe in Christ. And the fact that he describes them as scattered among the nations probably means this is a circular letter that would go around a number of churches. And we know from the style and the issues that he raises there were predominantly Jewish believers that he was writing to. And they're believers who are facing trials and difficulties. So that's who James is and who is he writing to. And he writes them, urging them to keep the right perspective so they can keep persevering in the gospel life. And that perspective is given to us in verse two. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. 
Notice the perspective he's talking about here. James does not say rejoice or consider it joy that you are suffering. He's not advocating a form of Christian masochism here. Rather, he's saying you rejoice in the perspective you have about your suffering. And what is that perspective? Well, as he said, you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. The word for testing there is a word that means authenticity or genuineness. It's about proving something as being the real deal, as being authentic, as being tested and refined over a period of time so that you know you can trust it and rely on it. And the point James is saying is this. It is one thing for us as Christians to say, yes, I follow Christ. Yes, I'm committed to living for Christ caring for the vulnerable, not discriminating between people, treating all people as equal. But will you continue to do that when difficulties come, when trials come? Because if you don't, if you give up at the first sign of difficulty, if you stop living the gospel life when things become hard and you turn in on yourself and become self-absorbed and self-centred, then it proves that your faith is not genuine. On the other hand, trials refine you and show the genuineness of your faith such that if you persevere and keep living out the gospel life it proves your faith in Christ is real. That's the perspective we need to have. Think of it a bit like this. One of my privileges of being um, a vicar is that I've um, married many people and so when you see the bride and groom stand at the front of church and make their vows to one another they say those familiar words, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death us do part. Now they're they're glorious words and important words, but in some sense we know that notwithstanding a few wedding nerves, on the day it's easy to say those words, but the real authenticity, the proof of the genuineness of those words will come when a couple have been through the years and through trials and difficulties. If a couple make those vows on the wedding day, but they're the first sign of poverty, or when things get worse, or when they lose their job, you know, they suddenly drive apart and stop loving one another, then those words were empty. They weren't promises, they weren't committed, they weren't authentic. And of course, when a couple stands on their 25th wedding anniversary and they look back and you say to them, would you take away the trials? There's a sense in which they would say, well, they were unpleasant and we didn't want them at the time. But our love for one another has been proved by how we continue to love one another in the valleys of our marriage. That proved the authenticity. There's a genuineness. There's an integrity, an authenticity to a marriage that's been through 25 years of hardship that is just different and which you can't get cheaply. That is the perspective of persevering in the gospel life. And it's not just marriages, of course, it's friendships, a fair where the friend is no friend at all, but a friend who sticks with you through thick and thin is more precious than gold. And notice it's not a kind of glib, hey, these trials are nothing, nor is it a kind of Christian stoicism, stiff upper lip that just says, I can push on through these trials. It's an emotionally engaged faith that says, these trials are difficult, they're tough, but I'm not gonna turn in on myself. I'm not going to stop doing the basics of being a Christian, looking to the needs of others, loving God, loving my neighbour, guarding my tongue. I'm going to continue to persevere in that gospel life. And as I do, the authenticity of my faith is proved, is worked out. Now, of course, this applies significantly to 
discrimination and to race. Because one of the challenges we face is the gap between our confessions on racism and the functional reality. In other words, you, you ask most people, you know, are you racist? And they say, no, of course not. I'm, I'm not racist. I value all people the same. But the question is, functionally speaking, when life becomes difficult, do you actually favour yourself? Do you actually favour people who are like you just because it's easier? Do you stop being as generous to the other who is different to you, who is difficult to understand? We've seen that tragically, haven't we, around Brexit. And I'm not making a, a statement about the rights and wrongs of Brexit itself. I'm just saying that the culture around it showed that because we were facing times of economic uncertainty and economic hardship and social problems, the tendency within culture was to turn in on ourselves and to start putting the problem as being out there on the other. It wasn't so much that suddenly the far right you know, suddenly got a grip on British politics. It was that normal people and ordinary people suddenly stopped caring about the other because it's hard. That's what the difference is here, why it has to persevere in living the gospel life. When things get difficult, we can turn in on ourselves and suddenly we start functionally speaking, acting in discriminatory ways towards other people just because they're different to us and it's hard and it's not so easy. Even if you say to that person, are you racist? Of course I'm not racist. That is why James emphasizes we must persevere in the gospel life. Keep this perspective that when trials come, it proves the authenticity of your faith. So don't give up. Keep going. Secondly, the threat to persevering in the gospel life in verses 5 to 8. Now in verse 5, James seems to change the subject. Um, he starts talking about wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. And you think, well, James, why are you changing the subject? Now, we're going to need to get used to James and these quick scene changes that he does. And it looks like he's um, bringing in a new idea. But actually, when you carefully reflect on these so-called scene changes in James, you realise that he's not changing the subject. He's developing the subject on the same theme. And so the key part here is verses 6 to 8. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. The key word here is double-minded. And it's actually obscured, but it's linked to the word for doubt in verse 6. We tend to think of doubt um, purely in terms of having absolute psychological certainty. But this is a different Greek word for doubt. It means to choose or to discriminate between two options. Literally, to judge between is the word used here. So it's much more tightly tied to, um, to being double-minded. So James is not saying you must have 100% psychological certainty. He's saying don't have split loyalties. Don't be double-minded. Now, how does that work? Well, it works like this. It's someone who says, I have faith in God. Of course, I trust in God and I want to live for him. But also, this really matters to me as well. And that but also is something they elevate to a position of importance on a par with God. That is what he means by being double-minded or to have split loyalties. A lot of Christians, in fact, all Christians, I think, are in danger of having but also's. So we say, I know, I, I trust God, I do. But also, I, I really care about what people think and say about me. I do trust God, but also my job, my career really, really matters to me. Uh, God is my priority, 
but also I want a successful church and I want you know, my church to be fruitful. Now, of course, a lot of those things are good things, but here's the point. When they're elevated as but also as to being on a par with God, they become idols and we have split loyalties. We are double-minded. And here's how it works when trials come along. When trials come along, they expose our split loyalties. That's why they are the threat to perseverance. Because we will not be single-mindedly devoted to God if we have split loyalties when trials come along. So think of it like this. If the trial of unemployment comes along and your but also is your job and your career, then it's very easy for your emotional centre to be attached to your job or your career. And therefore you'll do anything, you'll scrawl and you'll scratch and you'll grab to hold on to your job. You'll act in a very unchristian way as though the gospel doesn't matter because you have to hold on to your job at all costs. It doesn't matter what it is. Even if it might mean diminishing a person of different ethnicity or race to you just so you can get ahead, leveraging maybe white privilege just to get ahead, you'll do it if your job is your all in everything. Or think of it this way within the church. One of the tragedies of the George Floyd, um, uh, I suppose the aftermath of George Floyd's um, tragic killing is the way that um, many church leaders um, have been not wanting to speak about it and have been resisting speaking about it. And stories have come out from brothers and sisters who are black of saying they felt silenced in their churches. Now, I'm sure if you ask those leaders who led those churches, are you racist? They would say, no, no, of course not. So why is it that they don't want people to speak about it? Well, probably because they've got split loyalties. Probably because, as I recognise in my own heart, it's all too easy to say, I do care about Christ and I want to follow him. But actually, now that the culture is suddenly stirred up and I'm facing trials, I really care about maintaining stability and the status quo in my church. And therefore, I can't have people speaking up. I care too much about that. So I'm going to silence people, not because I think I'm racist, but just because I don't want the church to be rocked or I don't want my church to not be successful. You see, split loyalties can suddenly lead us by the nature of them being idols into ungodly behaviour and doing things in our better moments we would never do. That's why double-mindedness matters so much. And that is why the wisdom that James is talking about in chapter 1, verse 5, is the wisdom of being single-mindedly devoted to Christ, saying, I will follow Christ. I will not give up on him. I will not be double-minded and hedge my bets. I will not have but also. He is my all and everything. I will follow him. And therefore, when the issue of discrimination comes up, No matter the cost, I will do the right thing. I will confront the blind spots in myself and my own heart, in my subculture. I will persevere in the gospel life. A few years ago, I was sitting with a brother in Christ who um, is black, and we were talking about race issues, and I said, look, I really want to understand, and I, I want to kind of understand things from your perspective. And he paused, and he looked at me with a wry smile. I remember it vividly, and he said, Do you really want to know? And at the time I was taken aback, I was even a little bit vain and um, offended that he was saying, do you really want to know? Because I was thinking, well, I've reached out to you and I'm having this conversation, of course I want to know. But I've come to realise what he meant was, he was basically asking, are you double-minded? Because he went on to say that he'd had many such conversations with church leaders, many such conversations with white brothers and sisters, when it turned out that they didn't really want to know. They said they did, but when suddenly something that was very close to their heart and precious to them, came under threat, they didn't really want to know. Double-mindedness. It's so easy. 
And therefore, in some sense, one of the great challenges to overturning racism is not that we have to confront the far right where people are explicitly racist, but it's people who say, no, I'm not racist, but we won't give up on our split loyalties. And therefore, we continue under pressure to act in discriminatory ways because our hearts are divided. And James writes into a similar situation and he says, persevere, realise the threat of double-mindedness, be single-minded in your devotion to Christ, that's the only way. Well, you might say, well, I wanna be single-minded, but how do I do that? You can only be single-minded in your devotion to Christ when you realize that Christ has been single-minded for you. Jesus was the most single-minded person who ever lived. Everything in his life, from his first to his last breath, was all about one thing, seeking and saving the lost, dying, for those he came to save. When all else turned against him, when all people fell away, he still went single-mindedly to the cross. And on the cross, he took the storms, the pain of God's judgment, poured out on him, and he refused to budge. He could have come down from the cross, he could have moved away from it, but he refused to budge because he was so single-minded in saving people. He said, I will take it all. I will take all of the anger of God, all of God's judgment on me for the way that we are too often double-minded, saying we love people but doing another thing. I will pay for all the idols of the human heart and the split loyalties, the way that we try to hedge our bets and have friendship with God, but also adultery with the world. He said, I will die for that. I will pay in my death so that I might bring about one heart, one mind of single-minded devotion to God by saving my people. And when you get that, then it's like weed killer on the idols, on the double-mindedness. It kills off caring about what other people say about you because you think Jesus is the one I care about supremely. It kills off concern for your career or your security because you think I have eternal security in Christ and I really matter in him. It kills off a desire to keep the status quo and not rock the boat because you think actually Jesus <laughs> face the cosmic instability of dying on the cross for me because he wanted to do the right thing to die for me. So I will now do the right thing in response. You say, Jesus died for my double-mindedness by being single-minded. I will be single-minded in my devotion to him. As I close, many of you will know um, about Rosa Parks who in, on December the 1st in 1955 in Montgomery, Alabama refused to give up her seat in the segregated blacks only section of the bus to a white person at the time. She faced great opposition, but she was single-minded in her pursuit of civil rights. And as a result of her single-mindedness and all the flack that she took, all of the discrimination and persecution she personally took, a year later in June, the district court upheld the decision and then later the Supreme Court upheld the decision that it was against the Constitution of the United States, a key landmark um, moment in the civil rights movement. In other words, her single-minded pioneering position on racial equality paved the way for thousands, if not millions of other people. Well, in the same way, Jesus is the great pioneer of our faith, the one who goes before us, who is single-minded for us, and therefore he says, follow me, be single-minded in your devotion to me. Because he came down, as Ephesians 2.15 said, to break down the dividing wall of hostility, yes, between us and God, but also between us and other people, to create one new humanity 
diverse but united, different ethnicities, no racial segregation, all the same, all one in Christ. He was single-minded about that, and therefore he calls us to be single-minded in the pursuit of that. So how do we respond? Stand firm, persevere. Don't just be a fair-weather Christian who says, I'm for these things when it's easy, but persevere when it's hard. Keep the perspective that this will prove the authenticity of your faith and mind the threats of the double-mindedness that will undermine your faith. Be single-minded in your devotion to Christ and single-minded in your pursuit of the gospel life that includes racial equality and reconciliation between all people, no matter the cost, no matter how hard it is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please forgive us for the ways in which we are so often those who confess with our mouths that we want to live a certain way, we want to love our neighbours, we want to follow Christ. But then when trials and difficulties come, too easily we turn in on ourselves. We fail to persevere in this gospel life. Our double-mindedness, our split loyalties leads us away. Please, Lord God, give us a spirit of humility and self-reflection to think about our hearts and identify the split loyalties the idols that might lead us to live and to act in ways that in our better moments we wouldn't want to. Please, Lord God, identify those and root them out in us individually, but also as a culture, so that we might be able to love our neighbour, not discriminate, be racially united, Lord God, live as a united and diverse community, inspiring London with the good news of Jesus Christ. That is our great longing. We pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen.